Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you uh, to Zoe Community Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, please come and say hi. I'll try to put on uh, my best foot forward or whatever, uh, however that goes. Um, just some quick housekeeping uh, to keep you all in the loop. Man, I feel like this moved forward since last week. Uh, but some quick housekeeping. So last week, we finished the book of Jude. So we were preaching through Jude. It was a short book. It took us a few months, though. Uh, we finished that. And as we do at Zoe, we preach through books of the Bible. Um, but this summer, since a lot of people are traveling and it's kind of an in-between time where we don't want to start something new right away, what we're going to do is we're going to do a summer series through the parables of Jesus in Luke. Okay, so we're not doing all of Luke. We're not even doing all the parables. There's a bunch of parables in Luke, but we're doing about seven of the parables. So we're going to do that. Each of them is going to kind of be a one-off where you don't necessarily need to be there the week before to know what's happening this week. And then after Labor Day, or maybe Labor Day, I forget what we're going to do, but right around that time, uh, kind of at the end of summer, what we're going to do is we are going to start a new series through a book of the Bible. And this book is unlike anything we've done so far. Okay, it's totally different than any other book we've done in our short history. So get excited, all right? I think that this will maybe blow your mind. Some would even say that this is the craziest book in the Bible. And you know, I figured I should explain that a little bit because I say it all the time, and it's kind of become a joke, uh, but it didn't start as a joke. What happened was when I first started preaching, uh, there was one preacher that I really looked up to, and I had a chance to talk to him and ask him kind of about his sermon preparation process. And one of the things that I really looked up to him about, uh, one of the reasons why I really liked his preaching was because when he preached the Bible, it really seemed to come alive. Like, I felt like he knew it so well, and, and it would just, like, come, you know, there's just something about it. Like, he, he got really deep into the text. So I asked him, like, what do you do? How does that happen? Do you, like, drink caffeine? Do you take steroids? Like, what's going on? And he said, and I, this is how I remember it. So maybe he didn't exactly say it this way, but he said, Whenever I study a passage of the Bible to preach, I study it and I study it and I study it until I feel as if it's the craziest passage in the Bible. That's how I heard it. I think that's what he said. The craziest passage in the Bible. Every single passage, every single book, every single verse in the Bible is a gold mine. And that's what I took away. So whatever passage I'm preaching, my goal is to study the passage and keep digging into the text, mining truth to the point where I can say, wow, I think this might be the craziest passage in the entire Bible. That's what I'm shooting for every single week. It's not a comment on one book being better than another or one passage being more exciting than another. It's not about comparison. It's a mindset of expectation that any passage... Any single passage, it could be a genealogy, it could be a prophetic passage, any passage can blow you away. And my hope is that this will catch on here to a certain extent. In fact, it has been a little bit. Someone texted me and said, I've been reading 1 Corinthians, and it might be the craziest book in the Bible. Uh, That's just music to my ears, okay? I just love when people say that kind of thing, whether it's John or Judges or whatever book. Any book that you're reading, if you're reading it to, to dig into it, to get deep, it has the potential to make you feel like it's the craziest book in the Bible. The Word is living. That's what I'm trying to say. And it gives life. And for newcomers here, uh, visitors, we're glad you're here. If you're a little newer to the church, just by way of housekeeping again, Zoe, the name of our church, is actually the Greek word for life. There are multiple Greek words for life. There's a word for biological life. Zoe is the word for true life or spiritual life or eternal life. The kind of life that is only available 
in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the zoe, okay, and the life. And that leads us to our text today. If you could open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. We're starting the parables next week. But what we're going to do today is go back to our ongoing series that we go back to every once in a while, a biblical counseling series. This is going to be something that we're going to do uh, every once in a while forever, probably until the end of this church. The hope is that we have a culture of counseling here at this church. And what I mean by that isn't that we would offer Christian therapy to everybody, not even that we would necessarily build out a counseling ministry where we have trained counselors, certified counselors who counsel you if you have a problem. That could be part of it. But rather that we would take the principles of how the Bible speaks into our lives practically and to our issues and to sow these principles into our church so that you, as the saints of the church, would be equipped to help each other with sin and suffering. And also, I hope that you would be able to apply these principles to your own life, to your own sins that you struggle with, to the own, uh, to your own suffering that you go through in a biblical way. So today, we're laying the next layer of the foundation here. Um, last time, it's been a while, so I'll just recap. Last time, we talked about how everyone is a counselor, how even if you'll never formally sit down and counsel someone, you still will have many opportunities to give counsel. Okay, when your kid comes home and tells you that they're being bullied by someone at school or uh, on their sports team, when a brother or sister asks for advice on whether or not to make a career change, when a friend asks for prayer because she's depressed, these are opportunities that we have to counsel, to speak words that are sound and biblical and helpful. Okay, this is what counseling is at a most at the most basic level. And we want to equip you guys as the church for these opportunities. So let me read the text. We're in 1 Timothy 3. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15, mostly 15, but let me read from verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do. God, I pray that you would use your word during this time to build us up. God, I pray that you would bring conviction where we need to be convicted. I pray that you would bring encouragement where we need encouragement. I pray that your spirit, Father, would use your word in a powerful way in our church, in our hearts today. God, we look to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. A pastor told this story once, and I never forgot it. When he was a younger pastor, uh, a family, two parents approached him after service one day. And they said, hey, do you think you could talk to our daughter? She was a teenager. Our daughter's depressed, and we feel like maybe you as a pastor could help out. So he said, sure, no problem. So they all got together, the parents, the daughter, and the pastor. And she was about 15. Uh, so the pastor said, so tell me what's going on. Okay, so what are you feeling? How are things going? And she said, you know, I'm feeling depressed. Uh, and they started talking more about God and, and church. And she said, you know, I am a Christian. I believe I'm a Christian. Um, I don't have a problem with anything that you're saying on Sunday. I don't have any doubts or questions or anything like that. But then she said these words that really got to the heart of what was going on. She said, I believe in Jesus, but I believe in Jesus, but what good is it if no boy will ask you out? Now, I know some of us parents here, we, we're triggered, right? We can't get over the fact that a 15-year-old would want to date, right? You're not going to date until you're 24, and then it's going to be an arranged marriage anyway, so you're never going to date. 
you can't do, okay, that's what you're thinking. You can't even be thinking about such things. That's not the point, though. The point is, a dating relationship is what she was thinking about. To her, she believed in Jesus because she had no problem with the doctrines of Christianity, but she couldn't see how that helped with her pressing issue. And you can plug in any issue in your life here. This is what you hear as a pastor. This is what you hear in the church if you've been around for a long time. Pastor, I believe in Jesus, but how does that really help if I hate my job? I believe in Jesus, but how does that help if I can't afford to take my kids on vacation or if I have to see that same irritating mom week in and week out at the co-op? How does that help if we can't get pregnant or if I'm in pain all the time? Or even with sin struggles, which would seem to be a little bit more closely connected with Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian, but I still keep snapping at everyone in my family when I get home from work. Or I feel so lazy and can't summon the motivation to do things I know I need to do. Or I know I definitely have a problem with money or alcohol or fill in the blank, but it just doesn't seem to be helping. Maybe you believe in Jesus, but you can't see how that's supposed to connect to the pressing issues of your life. That 15-year-old girl asked such an important question, what good is it? See, a lot of us, a lot of us, we know the Bible teaches us about eternal life, about spiritual things, but what about everyday life? What about the pressing things that I'm going through? Now, Romans 15, 14 says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And the word for instruct here in Romans 15 is nutheteo, the Greek word for admonish or counsel. See, what Paul is saying here is that when we are full of goodness and filled with knowledge, that is when we are mature and equipped Christian, all of us should be able to counsel each other. We should be able to help each other. We should be able to speak words of life to people who are going through all these different issues. It's not just for pastors or professionals. It's the way life in the church should be when we're firing on all cylinders. We should be able to help bridge that gap between Jesus and whatever that thing is that you're going through. Now, the question is how? That's why we're in 1 Timothy 3 today. Uh, I read the text. You might have noticed that on first read, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with counseling. It doesn't talk about issues. It doesn't even really give you something to do, per se. The thing is, First Timothy is an interesting book. Some would even say the craziest book in the Bible. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, his protege in ministry and true, true child in the faith. And at this time, Timothy was actually leading the Ephesian church. And this is not throwaway information. It's important. So Timothy was actually pastoring. You could say he was the lead pastor of the church at Ephesus. So when you read the New Testament, Ephesians isn't the only letter to the Ephesians. Okay, First and Second Timothy both are written to Timothy while he's at Ephesus. Now, this is important because Ephesus was one of the largest and most significant cities in the Roman Empire. And this presented certain challenges and certain contrasts. See, the church in Ephesus was supposed to live differently than the culture of Ephesus. They were in Ephesus, but they weren't supposed to be of Ephesus. You get how that works. And this contrast highlights for us the importance of how Paul describes the church in these verses we are looking at. He specifically describes the church as the church of the living God 
and a pillar and buttress of the truth. And these two descriptions are key because, see, what we need to do as Christians within the church is point each other to Christ at the most simple, basic level. But as we talked about, that's not always helpful to say because it's so general. It's kind of vague. What does that even mean? Point people to Christ. Someone has an issue and you just say, look to Christ. How does that help? What do we mean by that? These two descriptions help us to understand what we're specifically aiming for when we're pointing to Christ. In pointing to Christ, we're seeking to point sinners to the better Savior. And in pointing to Christ, we're seeking to point sufferers to the better story. Now, we're going to unpack that. But basically what I'm saying, in other words, is biblical counsel, giving people sound words that actually help from the Scripture at a fundamental level is about replacing on the one hand and about resituating on the other. These are some of the most important ideas I learned in my time studying counseling, replacing and resituating. And if you grasp these two ideas, it'll completely change the way that you look at your own issues, the way you parent, the way you deal with conflict with other people, and the way you interact with brothers and sisters in the church. So let's get into it. Only two points today. Okay, I'm feeling different. Okay, two points. We're going to break this down. First, replace. That's the first thing, replace. What we're called to do is to replace the worship of dead idols with the worship of the living God. Or to help people. Replace the worship of dead idols with the worship of the living God. As one of my teachers said, and I paraphrased him, we need to point sinners to a better Savior. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Okay, you can stop there. Paul says he's writing these things in this letter so that Timothy might know how one ought to behave as part of the church, and so that he can teach others. Ultimately, this is about living, how we respond and how we react to uh, to different situations and how we proactively walk in obedience and righteousness. But notice how Paul describes the church, first as the household of God. And we already talked about this last year. We did a series called Ecclesia, where we talked about the different metaphors for the church in the New Testament. So we actually talked about how the church is the household of God, right? The church, the word church means uh, in Greek is Ecclesia. It means the assembly. So the church is the people of God. And Paul says the church is the family of God. But then he says something interesting. The household of God, the family of God, is also the church of, the assembly of the living God, the living God. So to literally describe what Paul is saying here, the family of God is the people who are about the living God as opposed to the dead God. Now, why does he say it this way? Why doesn't he just say our God? Why does he say the living God? Well, turn with me to Acts 19, Acts chapter 19. We'll be back in 1 Timothy, so don't lose your place. But Acts 19 Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Okay, Acts 19. Look at verse 1. This is what Luke writes in Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, There he found some disciples. So this is when Paul went to Ephesus. Okay, same area that Timothy is in in 1 Timothy. Now, I want to read the whole chapter, but we don't have time. So skip down to verse 
23. Verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That was, that was Christianity, okay? For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. I know, what a crazy thing. Verse 27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's just a mob. Okay, it's crazy. See, when Paul was in Ephesus, this is what happened. And the reason this happened was Ephesus was the location of the great temple to Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was the Greek goddess of the hunt, of childbirth, of nature. And the worship of Artemis was at the center of Ephesus, the city, not just religiously, but also economically. So when Paul showed up and started making waves, preaching Christ, it brought, as Luke writes in Acts, no little disturbance. But this is what Paul always did. It would be good to read Acts sometime to see how Paul actually approaches evangelism, how he deals with preaching the gospel. Not only would he preach Christ and tell people about Jesus and the gospel, he would also deconstruct their own religious beliefs. He would talk about how they weren't real or true. And the Ephesians got the message. That's why they said, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. He preached the true God, and he preached against false gods, idols. And this didn't start with Paul. Okay, If you read the Old Testament, it talks about idolatry a lot. That was one of the biggest struggles for the people of Israel worshiping other gods. The first of the Ten Commandments, do you remember what it is? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. It's not make sure you worship God when you do worship. It's make sure you worship God above every other God. It's about the priority of your life. The assumption was, even in the Old Testament, that we're not and never neutral. That there will always be things vying for the throne and worship of our hearts. We're always going to worship, whether idols or the real God. Now, some of you might be thinking, understandably, okay, How is this relevant to us? Jesse, I get it. They were into idols. They had statues. They believed in all these other gods. But look around. There aren't any idols anywhere. If there's one thing I don't struggle with, I mean, I have many struggles. But if there's one thing that I am never tempted to do, it's to fall down on my face and bow down to some statue in my house. I've never even been tempted to want to convert to 
the Greek pantheon or anything like that. Well, I knew someone back in high school who wanted to be in a romantic dating relationship, let's say, okay? Not unlike that girl from the intro. And this guy was a professing Christian, and every Sunday he would go to church and he would sing songs about how great God was and how God is his treasure and stuff like that. He worshiped God. He was a Christian, at least supposedly he professed. However, when the opportunity arose to have a romantic dating relationship with someone who not only wasn't a Christian, but was actually against Christianity, guess what he did? He jumped at the opportunity. His friends at church talked to him about it like, hey, is this like a good idea? We kind of feel like this will be bad for your walk with God. You know, like she hates Christians. She hates God. This is something that I think will take you away from God in the long run. And it did take him away from church, from fellowship, but he didn't care. Sure, on Sunday, he still technically showed up sometimes to worship God, but his life was about this relationship. And he was willing to sacrifice a relationship with Jesus for this relationship with his significant other. He didn't mean, uh, uh, he didn't find meaning or purpose in life, in God. He found it in dating. And this is what the Bible is getting at when it talks about worship. It's not just about singing songs. It's not just about music. It's not just about your technical affiliation when it comes to religion. Worship is really what your life is about, the thing that's driving you, the thing that's most important to you. This is why idolatry is talked about so much as the problem beneath every other problem. Because at the end of the day, every issue is fundamentally a worship issue. It's not just that we are people who worship sometimes. We are worshipers. Even if you're not a Christian, you're a worshiper. David Foster Wallace, the late novelist, he once made this remarkably astute observation. This is what he said. He said, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he went on to explain what he meant. He said, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Notice when he talked about worship, he wasn't talking about Artemis. He wasn't talking about Buddha. He was talking about money, things, your appearance, the places where you tap real meaning in life. See, the word worship, it actually comes from the old English word worthship. Even that's like more modern, modernized old English, but it's from an older version of English, worthship. It's about ascribing worth, okay, giving value. Whatever you give your life to, and that means your attention, your focus, your energy, your ambition, whatever you deem worthy of sacrifice, that's what you worship. Everybody does this. A man may be an atheist officially, but every day he sacrifices his family and his health. Why? Because he wants to get ahead at work, working 90 hours a week, going for that promotion. He sacrifices his integrity. He lies to get ahead. That's where he finds ultimate meaning and purpose for his life, in the promotion, in the status, in the salary. 
A girl may be an agnostic officially, but every day she makes herself a living sacrifice for that sports scholarship, that soccer scholarship, whatever it is. She literally eats and drinks for the sake of that scholarship. It's what you believe. That's what worship is. It's what you believe is great enough to deserve your life. Worthship. All humans worship, no matter what race, religion, or creed. And the reason why we're like this as humans is because God created humans to worship. We're fundamentally worshipers. We all give worth to something or some things in our lives. To paraphrase Romans 1, we either worship the creator, as we were created to do, or we worship the creation. Or as some translations say, the creature. We worship things instead of God. So, back to 1 Timothy 3. The church is supposed to be the church of the living God, but the greatest struggle for all humanity is wanting to worship dead idols. We're supposed to worship God and God alone, and I know many of us seek to in the church, but see, the thing beneath all of our struggles, the thing beneath our sins, is that our hearts want to go after idols. We're tempted by them. And we live in a culture that constantly evangelizes us. There are ads, there are influencers, there are people who talk to us. The culture constantly, our society constantly holds up certain things as being the thing that you need to live for. And it's hard for us to say no. All of us struggle with this. Some of us, it's the approval of people. That's what we struggle. We, we feel like we need to live for it. If people don't like us, then we feel like our lives are over. Some of us, it's the security that comes with money. Some of us, it's a certain lifestyle because we want to be seen a certain way. Do we understand that the sins we struggle with, the issues that a lot of us struggle with, are all at the fundamental, at the most fundamental level, worship issues? Okay, let's make this practical. Let's say you're struggling with outbursts of anger, not righteous anger, okay? You know it's not righteous. You can even admit that. You know that your anger is not good. You lose it with your wife, with your kids. It's really starting to affect your family in a bad way. What do you do? There might be some practical things that could help. Count to three, you know, before you get angry so they have time to run away or whatever. Maybe you tell your family to stop being so irritating. That always works. Maybe you need more sleep. And there is a component to that, you know, a physical component. Making those changes could help. But you didn't really get to the root of why you get angry. Your anger is the fruit of worship gone bad in your heart in some way, if the Bible is describing human nature accurately, which it is. So let's say, more specifically, you get angry when your family is running late. That's when your anger comes out. Maybe you even got angry today on the way to church because they were lagging so much. What will people say when they see us showing up late all the time? They'll think we're disrespectful. They'll think, they'll think that I don't have uh, my act together. They'll think we don't, uh, we're not a family that values other people's time. They'll judge us. And there you go. You got to get deeper into why these things are happening. See, if that's how you're thinking, if this is when you get angry, what's most important to you in your moments of anger It's not God and what he thinks and what he wants for you. It's actually what other people will think. How do you know? Because you're willing to sin when you're afraid you won't get it. You're loving the approval of man more than the approval of God. What other people think is your idol and you're sacrificing being a godly father and husband on the altar of that idolatry. Now, I'm not justifying being late. You might think I am because I'm always late, but I'm not. 
But I'm talking about our sinful response to the things that happen. This is how all sins are. Some people get angry for other reasons. What could be happening is the people who are lagging, your family members, maybe they are late because they also value the opinion of others. They need to make sure that they get ready, that they have everything. They're all like well put together. They'd rather show up late than show up disheveled. We all have different idols. Some people, what they want more than anything is control. Some people, what they want more than anything is comfort. The need to feel like things are going the way that I want. Think about your own heart. This might be difficult. Oftentimes, our idolatry struggles, they seem justified to us. Where they're invisible to us, really, in certain ways. We have blind spots. Because to us, it's so obvious that this is an important thing, that I need to make sacrifices for this thing. Well, why do you not see this as being important? Of course I get mad when we're late. What person in their right mind wouldn't? Of course I care what other people think. Isn't that an important thing? Think about what you really want when you sin. When you're willing to actually disobey the word of God, why are you doing that? What is prompting you to make that choice? What is the calculus in your heart that, okay, I know it's sin, but it's worth it because I need to have this other thing. Think about what you're afraid of if you don't get it. Think about what keeps you up at night. Think about what causes you to go above and beyond in your effort. Get this into your head. When I'm sinning, something's actually wrong with my worship. When I'm sinning, something's wrong with my worship. And the solution is to recognize and replace, that's what we're talking about in this point, the worship of idols with the worship of Jesus Christ. You need to repent of your sin and turn to Christ. But if you want to get deeper to what's actually going on in the heart, you got to understand that as worshipers, we don't just need to stop sinning, the behavior. We also need to dig out the root of that behavior, which is our bad worship. You see what I'm saying? You need to replace that thing, whatever it is that you place on the throne of your hearts with Jesus Christ. That's what true repentance is at a heart level. This is why in part I went to 1 Timothy 3.15. The church is the church of the living God. We have to keep that as our true north. We're always, we always need to try to go back. We need to reorient our worship to the living God. The truth is you can worship idols. Okay, that can be real worship. The idol is not a real God, but you can give it real worship. That's why I think it's uh, profound in some ways that he doesn't say the church of the real God, the church of the living God. You can give yourself, you can sacrifice, you can pour yourself out for these idols. That's real. The thing is, it won't go anywhere. We read the scripture reading, Psalm 115. These idols can't give you anything at the end of the day. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have eyes, but they can't see. And at the end of the day, you're going to become just like them, meaning it's going to lead you to your death. They're dead. It says David Foster Wallace observed. He said, worship money and it'll never be enough. So many of us, we don't believe that. We know that it's never enough for anyone else. But I know when I hit that goal, then I will be satisfied. No one ever is. Worship beauty and it'll kill you when you start to age. And you see this with some people who basically mutilate their bodies with endless surgeries in this quest for beauty, and yet it never returns them to their youthful state. Just as the false god Baal was unable to deliver in the days of Elijah. Do you remember that? Because Baal was a dead idol. So are our idols unable to deliver true meaning and purpose and joy and life. So the first step is to recognize what are the idols that tempt you? 
Where does your worship tend to go wrong? And the thing about our society is, again, there's nonstop evangelization toward these idols. What are the things that are influencing me? I mean, I, I heard someone say, take a screenshot of your For You page on Instagram or whatever social media you frequent. The algorithm will tell you what you're into. People always want to deny it. Right? It's all like fancy watches and nice cars. You know, I'm not worldly. I don't know why they're showing me this. I don't even want to see this. Get away from me. The algorithm will tell you if you don't know. Ads will tell you what you don't know. All these things are pointing you toward idols. So you need to recognize what's going on at the level of your heart, the war for your worship. So recognize and then replace. There's only one living God, and he's not just the only God. He's the only true God, the only God who is actually worthy of being called God, the God you were made for. Don't just look to dead gods because they can't do anything for you. Look to the true God who can save you from real purposelessness and misery. It's like in John 4. Do you remember this story? I'll just paraphrase it for you for the sake of time. The woman at the well, Samaritan woman, she was an outcast because she had five husbands. She was living with someone who wasn't even her husband now. And Jesus started talking to her while uh, she was drawing water. And he asked her, would you be interested in living water? She's like, uh, okay, what is that? Are you a salesman? And he starts explaining what that living water is. And Again, in light of our text, think about even how Jesus is talking. Living water. Okay, living water. She said, okay, well, now that you told me about it, I'll never thirst again. Sure, where can I get it? And Jesus said, well, call your husband. And she said, I don't have one, Um, which is technically true. And he said, yeah, I know you've had five and you're living with another guy. And she's like, uh, I perceive that you are a prophet. Like, how did you know that? And then what does Jesus talk to her about after that? Can you remember this? Maybe you don't remember it the same in your head, but what does Jesus talk to her about after this? He doesn't talk about methods of getting water. He doesn't give her a sales pitch. And he doesn't even talk about water at all at this point. He starts talking to her about worship. And then she believes in him. And here's what happened. She kept trying to find something in these relationships. That's what you see in the story. Obviously, she wasn't finding it. She went from husband one to two to three to four to five, and then to this next guy. It's like she was drinking from so many different wells, and she was still as parched as ever, but Jesus gives living water. See, what helps her is that she actually finds the Messiah, and she believes in him, and that changes the trajectory of her life. She finds a different meaning and purpose for her life. She goes and she tells everybody, I think I found the Christ. Every idol will chew you up and spit you out in the end. That's why you see all these people who got everything they wanted, athletes, entertainers, CEOs, who choose to end their own lives sometimes because they reached their idol and found it to be dead. Jesus, on the other hand, he knows everything we've ever done, and then he offers us living water, eternal life. Now, more on this in the next point. There's a lot more to say to this to this point, but biblical counseling, okay, part of where it starts is about replacing idols with Jesus. It's about repenting from the worship of dead gods that aren't really gods to the worship of the living God. Second point, resituate, resituate. Replace, resituate. This is about, in my old teacher's terms, pointing sufferers to a better story. Because not every counseling issue is a sin issue per se. We're all sinners. Okay, let's get that right. But sometimes people are struggling because of the sin that is out there, not necessarily the sin 
that is in here. Maybe someone was abused as a child. This is unfortunately pretty common. And the child was a sinner, okay, like everyone is, but it doesn't mean the child is responsible or at fault for what happened. You guys, We all understand that, right? We understand how this works. Sometimes a loved one dies and you need counsel. Sometimes a mistake is made at work and it really wasn't your fault and you lost your job and you need some encouragement and counsel. Sometimes you get sick and it's not because of secret sin or anything. It's just because we live in a fallen world with germs and you need counsel. Sufferers need to be pointed towards Christ too. Now, for the sake of clarity, I'm distinguishing sinners and sufferers. We're all sinners and we suffer at different times. They're not mutually exclusive. But for the sake of explanation, I'm just going to talk about sin and suffering as two different things. Sinners in their sin need to be challenged at the level of their idols. Sufferers need to be comforted with the story of the gospel. Look at the text again, First Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is a pillar and a buttress. Okay, now, these are not random things that Paul just brought out of his imagination. The imagery was used probably because the great temple of Artemis towered over Ephesus. I don't know if you've seen any pictures or any like 3D kind of renditions or models that they made of the temple of Artemis. It doesn't exist anymore. Okay, it's kind of broken down. Um, but it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there was a guy, actually, Antipater of Sidon, and he had seen the other wonders of the ancient world. He had seen the pyramids. He had seen, like, the Colossus of the Sun, that, that huge statue that kind of stood over Rhodes. And he said that out of all the things he saw, the pyramids, the Temple of Artemis was the most magnificent. 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, 60 feet high, made of solid marble. It had over a hundred pillars that held up the roof. And though the temple doesn't exist anymore, again, it's estimated just by the size and the material that the blocks on top of the columns, not to even mention the roof, the blocks on each column weigh 24 tons each. How did they even build this? You see those guys on the History Channel who say it was aliens? I don't think it was, but when I think about how big this building was, I'm like, well, I don't know how humans did it. The roof had to be held up by strong pillars. And the walls were held up by these diagonal supports called buttresses to keep the walls from falling over or collapsing. So the church of the living God is to be a pillar and a buttress, not of the roof or the walls of an earthly temple, but of the truth itself. We're supposed to uphold the truth. Now, there are a lot of possible applications to this. We were in Jude for the past few months We're supposed to uphold the truth in contrast to a world that doesn't say there is any truth. The truth is relative. Your truth, my truth, we all have our own truths. We need to contend for what is actually objectively true. This means we need to preach the truth against the lies of our culture. This means that false teaching within the church is a major problem. However, we're talking about counseling. So more specifically, what I want to talk about is we need to uphold the truth in-house. And sometimes the hardest place to uphold the truth is within our own hearts. We need to preach the truth to ourselves. Psalm 42, Psalm 42, the psalmist speaks to his own soul. Do you remember this? He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 
He calls his soul to hope in God. This is what we need to do. Because when we're suffering, the ironic thing is the easiest thing to do is forget God. For Christians. Johnny Erickson Tata and her husband Ken, they just celebrated 41 years of marriage. You might have seen that if you follow uh, their ministry at all. She was paralyzed, if you don't know her. Johnny was paralyzed when she was 17. Uh, She became a quadriplegic from the neck down. And when she got married, she was already paralyzed. So she wrote, wrote a blog post a few days ago, like this past week, reflecting on their marriage and how difficult it's been, not just for her, but for her husband. Because she recognizes that. Even though they knew it was going to be difficult, 41 years later, she's saying it was day in and day out even harder than what they expected. And yet this is what she said. She said, but it's the pain and the problems associated with my quadriplegia that have bound Ken and me together. Just like that verse in Ecclesiastes that says two are better than one. And the more devastating the trials, the more God has wrapped us both around himself. That's the cord of three strands that Ecclesiastes speaks about. Husband, wife, and the Lord Jesus. If the man and woman twine their lives around each other in marriage, that's good, and they'll be stronger for it. But if both husband and wife twine themselves around Jesus Christ, that's best of all, because that's a union that will hold through whatever life or whatever hell might throw at them. It's a beautiful picture, yet Ken and I are very aware that it isn't true for every marriage. It's especially difficult for couples dealing with disability. So many of those marriages just don't survive the test because we live in a society that doesn't know what to do with suffering. We do everything we can to think of, or we do everything we can think of to escape it. We medicate it, we mask it, surgically remove it, drug it, institutionalize it, divorce it, or even euthanize it. Anything but live with it, end quote. And that struck with me. Excuse me, that, that struck me, okay, or stuck with me, whatever one you prefer. That stuck me. Stuck with me, dude. Anyway. What she said was, we live in a society that doesn't know what to do with suffering. And isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? People write out the story of their lives for themselves, but when suffering enters into the picture, they don't know what to do. And it's reflected in how we talk. It's reflected in how we justify certain things. It's reflected in the questions that we ask. I had a friend, and he was a Christian, but whenever anything didn't go his way, he would yell out, why is this happening to me? super loud. He was frustrated. He was confused. How could a bad thing, God forbid, happen? And this is how we can talk too. We say things like, when things aren't going well, no one cares about me, or I don't see how any good can come out of this, or my life is ruined. What's missing in so many of the questions that we ask and the statements that we make when we're going through suffering, even how we feel about it, is God. See, the Bible is not a systematic theology. Don't get me wrong, it teaches theology. But it's not written as a textbook with different subjects for, different sections for different subjects. It's also not a counseling book where you can just look up whatever your issue is and there is a verse that's exactly made for that issue, like it's a pill that you can take. Primarily speaking, the Bible is a story. Almost half of the Bible is narrative, but that's not even what I mean. There is an overarching storyline to the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. The story is the gospel. The Bible begins with God creating the world and everything in it. It was originally good in every way, but humanity sinned and rebelled against God and plunged the world into decay and death. 
But if you keep reading, you see that God is a redeemer and the story of the Bible is redemption. And God himself steps into the pages of his own book, so to speak, in the person of Jesus Christ. And he gave his life to save the world. After he died, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, and he will return to ultimately make all things new. Now, there's more to the story than that. Obviously, the Bible is a long book, but that's the basic storyline, the basic plot of the Bible and of all creation. It's creation in the beginning. There's the fall, there's redemption, and then there's new creation at the end. The Bible isn't just about rules. It's not just about principles to to follow sometimes if you want some tips for a wiser life. The Bible isn't even just about religion and going to heaven at the end of your life, even though it is some of these things. It's more. It's the story of creation and what God is doing to fix what our sin destroyed, including us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That's what gospel means. It's the true story that the Bible tells. Now, if you're a Christian— you probably heard this before. My old pastor at Lighthouse, the church that planted us, he would literally preach the gospel every sermon in basically the same way. And as time went on, you could tell that people were zoning out. They were tuning it out. I already heard this story before. I've heard it a million times. I believed it when I was five years old, when I became a Christian. But understand how remembering this story and resituating ourselves, more importantly, within this story helps us with whatever life throws at us. Because one, it reminds us that suffering was not a part of God's initial design. God didn't create suffering on any of the seven days of creation. Suffering is a result of sin entering the world. All the things that make life difficult, work frustrations, relationship, conflict, death, they are a result of the fall. This means God isn't out to get us. This means that God isn't toying with us. The universe is not some cold place designed for our suffering. So you can hope in God, too. It reminds us that God is a redeemer in the business of redemption. This is the part of the story we need to resituate ourselves in again and again. God has a plan for his fallen creation. And Christian, you're part of that. Christian, God has a plan for your life. I know it's so cliche, but it's true. God is sovereign over everything. In Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The gospel gives us hope that right now isn't the end of the story. See, there's purpose in our suffering. If you read through the scripture, you see that suffering is something that actually brings us closer to God, or it can. It's something that can make us more like Christ. It can be that way. Suffering can be something that grows in us a greater hope and longing for the future. It can develop in us perseverance. It can make our faith more real. Christian, you might be going through something that probably isn't going to be, isn't going to get better. A lot of Christians struggle with these kind of things. The pain isn't going to go away anytime soon. That loss can't be undone. Resituate yourself in the gospel story. See, what you need more than anything is perspective and good news. God is redeeming and will redeem what you're going through. These afflictions will store up for you an eternal weight of glory if you do not give up. And even redemption isn't the end of the story, for in the end, Jesus will make all things new. See, there is a real hope that Christians have. It's just sometimes we have amnesia. 
we act like there's nothing, that there's no gold at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. We need to remind ourselves. In fact, Johnny Erickson Tata, I brought her up. She's someone who keeps the story in mind all the time. She has to. Her situation is objectively awful. At first, she tried to go to, you know, faith healers and stuff, people on TV who said, if you give me, you know, all your money, then I'll heal you. She went and she didn't get healed. She had to accept that her quadriplegia was something that God had ordained for her life. And yet, instead of turning bitter, she turned to Christ. And this is what she wrote. She wrote about eternity. She said, I still can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me, or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or who has multiple, uh, multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds, only in the gospel of Christ. Do hurting people find such incredible hope? End quote. You know, at Lighthouse, where I learned so much of uh, what I learned about biblical counseling, the church that planted us, I remember hearing one time just a general list of what was kind of going on among the people in the church, in the congregation, from the elders. Teenagers struggling with body image issues and eating disorders, people committing self-harm, parents dealing with kids who wanted to transition, abuse in marriages, pornography addiction, and that was just within like one small group or something like that. None of these things are simple fixes. Some may need professional help, but the thing is so often what's missing in so many of these people's struggles is God. And what was so encouraging about Lighthouse and the culture of biblical counsel that they had cultivated over the years was that these people were constantly being pointed to God in their sins and in their suffering. God is always working. Sometimes we have trouble seeing it. We aren't thinking about him. And we don't have hope. But because this was hammered into our, our heads and into our hearts again and again at Lighthouse, because the church was committed and equipped to give hope and to point to Christ, so many of the people who were struggling felt like they could make it to tomorrow. And that's really what we're trying to do. It was such a blessing for me to go to that church, to be in fellowship with other believers who knew how to point me and to point others to Christ, to help me identify and replace my idols and fight for the true worship of Christ, to remind me of the gospel story and help me resituate myself in it whenever I was going through hardship. It didn't always take away my problems, but it helped me to walk in them. And that's what I hope for us at Zoe. Now, a couple of practical thoughts and then we'll close. Obviously, there's a lot more to think about. I struggled to squeeze this all in, and I I knew it was going to be long anyway. But if you have more you want to talk about, if you're interested in learning more, um, feel free to ask me about resources or books that you might want to read. One classic book that uh, we read is called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. It's a little old school. It's a little textbooky. Um, but if you want to get a little deeper into actually how to apply the Bible practically, in these ways, they get to the heart and not just behavior. That's a good book. Um, and really, that's what we want to do. The title, we want to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. 
that we would be building each other up constantly, that we would flourish as a fellowship of believers. So if you want to know more, I would encourage you to try to find out more. Second, um, we're going to start our Theological Foundations class today. Um, and we have a few things that we're going to talk about. This class, we're going to talk about the solas of the Reformation. But in the future, maybe I was kind of thinking as I was preparing this, maybe we could do a thing specifically on biblical counseling, okay, how you could kind of grow in that way. So if you're interested, let me know, and then I'll think about doing it. If no one's interested, then we'll just never speak about it again. We'll close here. Uh, I read a true story once told by a professor, a theology professor and a minister. Uh, he was both. He was on vacation having dinner at a restaurant with his wife when an older gentleman struck up a conversation with them at this at this restaurant. And at first he was a little annoyed, like, can you just let me like eat in peace, please? But when it came out that this man was a professor and pastor, the older guy lit up and said, oh, let me tell you a story about a pastor, my old pastor. And the old man explained that he grew up with a single mother, which in that day and in his small town was a source of great embarrassment for him and shame. Uh, he didn't know who his father was, and people constantly reminded him of it. He started going to the local church, though, when he was still a young kid, and he really liked it. He loved hearing the Word of God. Uh, he became a Christian, but he would always self-consciously show up late and leave early. He didn't want to have to you know, talk to anybody or answer questions about where his family was or, or even get to know people. He didn't want to be judged. He just liked hearing the sermons and worshiping. One Sunday, he got so caught up in the service, he didn't want to leave. And before he knew it, they were dismissed, and everyone starts getting up and talking around him. He tried to rush out before he had to talk to anyone, but then he felt a hand on his shoulder. It was the pastor. And the pastor said, hey, young man, what's your name? I've seen you around, never got a chance to introduce myself. Who are your parents? And the boy panicked, not knowing what to say. And the pastor must have seen the look in his eyes and figured out kind of what was going on right away. So he pivoted and he said, oh yeah, never mind. I know who your family is. There's a distinct family resemblance. You're a son of God. That's right. You're a son of God. Just one little conversation, one little kindness, one little pointer to Christ. And this old man was still telling this story about how this pastor, but really it was about how the church changed his life all those years ago. That time when he was at a church service and he was pointed to his truer identity in Jesus and the better story of the gospel in just one little word. Look, you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a theology professor to do that kind of thing for your brothers and sisters here. So Christian, what good is Jesus? He's the Redeemer who redeems our suffering and rescues us from our sin for all eternity. He is the living God who stepped down into the pages of his own story to take the ultimate suffering for us, to bear the weight of our sin, to make us new even now. He is the Savior who knows everything about us and yet loves us still, as we talked about in Jude. He is living, he is better, and he can help us with the issues that we face. So what do we need to do? We need to replace we need to resituate. Let's pray together.